ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 199, and I am your host, Yelena Levin. Joining me today for the show are my co-hosts, Claire, Cl- Claire Krolle-Klingenberg and Pontus Buckman. Всем привет! Hey, hey, son! Vítame vás! Hello, Claire! <laughs> Welcome back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I butchered your last name, but double barrel names actually quite popular. My my friend did exactly the same. She's like, and she doesn't have the the easiest name either. So she, uh, yeah. And I'm like, what? Yeah. We'll have you back so often it will just roll off the tongue, Claire. So uh, it was again. I was have to say it was fantastic to be at your wedding, which is why you now have this. A little bit longer last name than before, but uh, yeah, well, thanks. Well, yeah, I mean, people used to screw up my normal name anyway, so I thought, what the hell, you know, I might as well make it longer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. In your face. In, in, yeah. for a, in, in for a penny, in for a pound, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Very good. Fair enough. Well, it's great to have you here on our pre-anniversary show. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, I am so happy to be back. Great. Good. And we've got quite a show for our listeners, uh, lots to talk about. Yes, we do have. But before we start into this new episode, I just want to say we've got some very good feedback on the last episode, which was the episode where we interviewed uh, Lydia Finch. So thank you very much, Lydia. People really enjoyed that uh, interview. She, of course, had this very interesting story to tell. And if you haven't listened to it, I suggest you should go back and, and listen because it was really good. Uh, one listener, Ulf, informed me especially about why JWs do not celebrate Halloween. He says it must be because they don't like weird people knocking at their door. I think that was <laughs> the best explanation so far. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for that, Ulf. I enjoyed that. So, Claire, I know you've been busy with like getting married and all the wonderful, exciting things. But uh, have you got any um, news developments in, in the world of skepticism? you want to mention quickly? So for the audience, uh, currently I do not have any new information. However, I hope starting January we will have some new interesting projects to share. All right, Pontus, have you got anything? No, uh, nothing. All right, we'll just move right on. I'm going to go in with my segment of interesting events relevant to science, skepticism on this week. This is a very short one uh, for this week about a ghost ship. We don't talk about ghost ships enough, I don't think. Anyway, called Mary Celeste. It was found on December the 4th, 1872, completely abandoned by the crew in the middle of the ocean. And nobody knew what happened to it. And I think to this day, there is no uh, understanding or uh, any sort of um, insight on on what's gone on. But the reason why I want to mention this uh, ghost ship is because in uh, 1884, a short story was published by an anonymous writer, which we now know was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, an Uh English uh, author who is very well known for his, um, what's his name? Sherlock. Sherlock Holmes. Stories, that's right. And he published a story titled J. Habakkuk Jeffson's Statement. And it was a first-person testimony by a survivor, in inverted commas, mm-hmm. of the Marie Celeste ship. And it was based, he kind of slightly changed the, the name of the ship, but it was based on this mysterious abandonment of the actual ship. 
and it was uh, published anonymously in uh, January of 1884 of uh, a magazine called Cornhill Magazine. He kind of used bits of the real story, but mostly changed like the names of the crew, captain, crew passengers, and talked about the, the what happened, you know, how the, the ship got into bad weather, and the fictional story reached a much wider audience at the time than the actual, the real story. And so what happened to this little paper that he published, it got taken seriously, and, and people actually believed that there was true account. So much so that Boston Herald picked up the story and published as a, as a real thing. Mm, <laughs> so uh, to, to very much to Doyle's astonishment. So there we go. And uh, he added this little publication to the works of his uh, and, and became very famous. Uh, well, obviously, we know now that the, uh, of other writings, but that was one of the first things wow. he published. So. Ah, there you go. But actually, I understand ships getting abandoned or just drifting uh, without any uh, crew across the oceans. That was pretty common mm. in the 1800s or probably before as well. That happened a lot uh, for different reasons. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I have no source for that, but I read that somewhere not too, too long ago, and I was rather fascinated yeah. about this the big Atlantic Ocean with full of these ghost ships. Yeah, it's very interesting, uh, mm. but also probably horrifying to be on one of those. But anyway, because yeah. then at some point you have to make a choice between jumping in the sea or starving to death, yeah. I guess, or yeah. something. Mm. Yeah. Or eating your shipmates. That or that. Do you guys remember, it's a very kind of loose association to your story, but last year that was the woman who married the ghost of a pirate. Yes. And then she divorced him six months later. <laughs> so I don't, I, I don't think, I don't think we can actually talk about ghost ships without talking about this ghost wedding and the ghost divorce. I, yeah, think, I think that's like uh, important even, to mention. Even, even marriage to the ghost didn't survive. I, it must have been oh. the age difference. I think he was born in <laughs> a couple of hundred years yeah, ago. He probably was on the ship Yelena was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, funny. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Okay, well, <laughs> there you go. It's another great story. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's it from me and um, uh, short for this week because we have a, a lot more things to talk about this week. And uh, we're going to go to Pontus now, who is poking the Pope for us. All right. So, of course, you know what this is going to be about. What is the first thing you think about when I say the Catholic Church? Abuse. <laughs> Children abuse. Exactly. Sex abuse. Yeah. There are so many stories about abuse that I usually, when I prepare this segment, I don't even bring them up uh, or a lot of them because uh, it becomes too repetitive. But this week I will list a few because we can't grow numb to this. It's a fucking outrage and we should not stop talking about it just because it's, you know, even if you think it gets boring. So here's a few that has been in the news lately. So let's start in Argentina because it's especially embarrassing for Francis because it concerns a friend of his. Gustavo Sanchetta is an old friend of Francis. We have mentioned Sanchetta before. And Francis retired him for so-called health reasons in 2017 after years of allegations against him. But that strategy is not working. And on 27th of November, he had to appear at the judicial hearing in Argentina where his legal counsel tried to argue that the charges should be dropped, of course. Mm -hmm. But the judges said no, and the trial will take place as scheduled, and Sanchetta risks up to 10 years in jail. So that's one. Also last month, Francis appointed Bishop Nicolas Di Marcio 
leader of the Diocese of Brooklyn, and he was appointed to investigate allegations of abuse by the Catholic Church in Buffalo. In Buffalo, they have apparently, and they, I know they have done this in other places as well, kept secret lists of local priests that have been reported for abuse, but they have failed to do anything about it for years. So, Dimastio was appointed. However, he had himself not even had time to start on his work before he was accused himself for abusing an altar boy. So that's not a very good start on that assignment. Then we have a Belgian priest, Father Luc Delft, who was sent to the Central African Republic by the Catholic charity organization called Caritas, although they knew very well that he was accused of being a pedophile. And to no one's big surprise, now he stands accused for new crimes, this time in Africa, abusing local boys. And then we can go back to Argentina again. Two Catholic priests, Horacio Corbaccio, and Nicola Corradi were convicted on the 24th of November to 45 and 42 years in jail, respectively, for decades of abusing children at the Antonio Provolo Institute for Deaf and Hearing Impaired Children. This is in Luján de Cuyo in uh, northwest Argentina. As, and as a side note, a local gardener was apparently also in on the fun because he was given 18 years. But can you imagine... They're abusing deaf kids because they supposedly cannot as easily tell anyone what's going on. Isn't that despicable? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so sorry for being... So this is why I don't do this every week, because it becomes yeah. repetitive and just fucking outraging. But sometimes we have to. So uh, Frankie himself has been busy because it's that time of the year. So he invited 1,500 of his poorest friends for lasagna again. We have talked about this previous years. He usually invites poor people in Rome for lunch once every November. And you can see him on the pictures looking all holy and pleased with himself, having lunch with quote-unquote the poor. Good publicity, that is. And that is something he handles really well. And good publicity also includes not talking about the before-mentioned scandals. He wants to look nice in front of the camera instead. So that's my poking of Francis this week. Yeah, outrageous, really. Mm. But at least the thing with the deaf kids. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. At least, at least these stories are now brought to the attention of the public on a very like regular basis. Yeah. And um, they tackle those abuse stories. They punish the uh, perpetrators. It takes a long time, though, right? It's not. It's it's taken a long time to get to this point. Yes, and, 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 but I would say that the big majority of all these uh, scumbags are, are still on the loose and probably will not get punished. And I think since today, sorry, is the first advent, oh, uh, yeah. the first holiday, I think uh, you can give your listeners some homework and that's to see in these four weeks... How many times in their local national newspaper, radio, TV, they will have someone from the church lecturing about morality? (laughs) Just, you know, just make a tally of that and, and, you know, send it in at the beginning of January and see which country's church was the most hypocritical. (laughs) Very good idea. So send that to info at theesp.eu. All right. This is Richard Saunders from Sydney, Australia, the producer of the Skeptic Zone podcast. Since 2008, the Skeptic Zone has been bringing you interviews, insights, reports and investigations covering the world of science and skepticism. 
Join me and my team of reporters each week at www.skepticzone.tv. All right, and uh, on to the news. And we will start with Claire. So uh, I have the pleasure of telling you about a news item coming in from Netherlands from one of the ESP listeners. And it's about a book review. Now you might think, what's so exciting about a book review? Well, the person who wrote it, uh, Pepin van Erp, got sued mm. for it. It must have been a good review, or, or it, a bad review, rather. It was a <laughs> well very, very review. good review. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so this review was uh, on a book written by Willem Middelkoop, who is a man who in the Netherlands was uh, very popular at the time of the economic crisis, and he was asked to give his opinion about many things. But already at that time, people who were playing, paying closer attention to him could tell that he was a conspiracy theorist. Anyway, last year, uh, he published a book where he officially came out of his conspiracy closet out into the open. Mm -hmm. And Pepin van Erp sat down and wrote a very, very detailed review of the book. So Middelkoop was, of course, very upset about a detailed, detailed review because it <laughs> pointed out many untruths, inconsistencies, lies and misinformation. For example... Like that the CIA killed Bob Marley. Wow. Now I have to I have to pause here for one. myself because I've never heard this conspiracy theory before. You always think when you're in you know a skeptic that you've heard it all, but no. Apparently this uh, gem comes from a Zimbabwean newspaper which was and it was published there as a hoax. <laughs> but the gentleman did not check it. He just somehow got this information and passed it on into his book. Another interesting thing that he had there was that he copied a large part of the article by Carl Bernstein, the CIA and the media, without actually sourcing it. And uh, there were other issues, but these are like the two flagrant strange things that happened in the book. Anyway, before Pepin reviewed this book, a couple of weeks earlier, there was a review by a, so a sociologist, Eric Hendricks. However, Hendricks just gave more of a general, this is bullshit kind of review, while Pepin sat down and actually looked at, went piece by piece and gave a, gave a very detailed one. So that's why he was the one who got sued and not Hendricks. Mm. Anyway, to make the long story short, Pepin won the lawsuit. The court said that uh, even though his critic of the book used unnecessary harsh language, it was still okay. It, it did not constitute libel or it was not un unlawful. So here is another win for the skeptics column. Woohoo! Woohoo! Uh, Very good. Well, Very good. but uh, an important lesson that comes from this is that lots of people tend to ignore charlatans or these kinds of like conspiracy theorists as long as they're not too bad, because they always have a tendency to think, oh, but he only says this, that's okay. I mean, we all, some of us all think have like a weird thing that we believe in, but. It's not that they are not too bad and they stay at the level of not too bad. They tend to progress a little bit further. So as we saw with Middlecoop, and I'm sure we can all think of another example within our own country, uh, there's no such thing as not too bad. <laughs> Good. Or, or the other question, they say, what's the harm, right? And yes, is, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I hope I'm not being too repetitive again because... <laughs> You know, I, I don't want to give you the impression that you have to be a Catholic to abuse people sexually. 
it's a field that doesn't discriminate by their religious beliefs. Exactly. Because yeah. there are four bishops and also the Archbishop of York who are now being the targets of a review ordered by the Church of England. This concerns a vicar called Trevor de Manicam, which is a bit of a strange last name, but Trevor de Manicam was reported by a victim called Matthew Innison, who has chosen not to be anonymous. This vicar was reported to several bishops and to the Archbishop of York, but nothing happened. The rape allegedly took place in the 80s when Innison was uh, 16 years old. So this uh, Trevor Devemanicam, who was accused, killed himself in June 2017, the day before he was due to appear in court, accused of other unrelated sex abuse allegations. Now, Innocent, the victim, repeatedly reported his allegations during 2012 and 2013, and in the end only got one reply. And that was from the Archbishop of York, John Sentamu, and he said that he would pray for him and he sent him his best wishes. Prayers and wishes. Isn't praying and wishing the same thing, really? Maybe in this case they were just wishing uh, the issue away or somehow. Anyway, since that didn't work, Innocent filed a formal complaint of misconduct in 2016 regarding the lack of action by these bishops. This complaint was dismissed by the church because they cited there was a one-year time limit for such complaints, so it was filed too late. Now, after years and years of vocal activism, the Church of England has now finally initiated an investigation. Innocent, however, does not support this review because he says it should be a fully independent review. And in this case, the church has appointed an investigator themselves. The church will still go on with this approach and they say they hope that the review will be completed and published next year. So there we go again, praying, wishing and hoping. So just to make sure that we don't just talk about the Catholic church, it happens in most religions, I would dare say. I don't understand how these institutions, not just churches, but like also universities, still can get away with doing the in an internal investigation themselves. This is so not an internal matter. This is a normal police matter and should not be investigated internally whatsoever. Mm. Yes, but just the distinction here is that what they will investigate now is if they didn't handle the complaints correctly. They will not investigate the actual crime. Still, but, I, yeah. No, but, I, but I agree yeah. with you. I just want to be uh, <laughs> yeah. clear. Yeah, but mm. even handling the complaints correctly, like what is already going to come up with? They're going to come up with some kind of phrase that, oh, yes, of course we handle this correctly. I mean, there's no <laughs> way they're going yeah. to criticize or, themselves. So, or, yeah. or they will say what they have said in the Catholic Church, we promise to do better in the future. Mm. And they never yeah. do. Yeah. Just whatever will, t uh, will make this go away mm. and improve yeah. the image, yeah. Okay, <clears throat> well, uh, guess what? My news are no better. <laughs> One might even say they're worse. <laughs> well, actually, no, I don't know. I don't know if they're worse or not. But they're coming from Latvia for a change. And this is uh, from our listener, Edgars, who brought it to our attention. It is about a case of a young mother of 20. She was 20 years old uh, and a baby. As they were given birth uh, at home, essentially refusing any medical uh, intervention due to the fact that they were belong belonging to a, a religious group called First Evangelical Church. Now, 
So what the first evangelical church proclaims is that, you know, you, you have to follow the New and Old Testament uh, to the letter, and basically um, the medicine and the scientific advantages are all a big no-no. Also, the pastors are, are your leaders, and they know best, and they'll tell you what to do if you're sick or whatever. So she was um, she was given birth at home, surrounded by her, uh, her husband. And then there was Father Valdis, who is a religious leader of the religious congregation. And his uh, wife, none of them had any medical education. Unfortunately, her birth went wrong. It wasn't an easy birth. And uh, the baby was born dead. The next day, the woman who was giving birth, she actually died herself from the most severe form of pregnancy toxicosis, uh, eclampsia. 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 Eclampsia, yeah. yes. This is completely and utterly unacceptable in the 21st century, considering we have all the necessary facilities and medical advance advances for women not to have that and be able to give birth in, in a safe environment. So this case was actually brought to court, and currently the local authorities have charged them with unauthorized treatment and abandonment, and uh, they will be facing up to eight years in prison. I'm surprised it's actually not manslaughter charges. But anyway, mm. yeah. two of the uh, accusers, uh, the husband, oh, sorry, <laughs> two of the accused, the husband and the um, leader of the congregation are being held under a detention. And the wife of the leader is out on the parole. The trial is going to be a lengthy one. Uh, actually, the, the case happened in January, but it, it's just uh, uh, gaining mm -hmm. traction now in the newspapers and the courts. Yes, so, the, so it took them a long time to get to that place. It is not yet clear whether these uh, these people will be um, indeed uh, held accountable and, and get a punishment. I've also done a, a little bit of digging around who the hell are First Evangelical Church of Jesus. And, and, and it's interesting because of the pastor's name is not an, it's not a Latvian name. Mm -hmm. The pastor's name is actually John David, which kind of made me think, hang on a second, who the hell is John David and why does he... It's a pseudonym, no? Yeah, maybe it's a taken name, biblical names. No, this church actually originates in America. It's, mm -hmm. an, it's an American church and they have global missions of which Latvia is one of the countries that they established their mission in. I'm looking at the map now and they, there's like um, South America, parts of Africa, Arab Emirates is there where they, they've got missions. So they kind of spread the missions ac across the, the globe. I'm not okay. sure how they've been funded apart from the donations. So what happened, this is, a, you know, one of the things I've, I have mentioned that before. When the Soviet Union fell, Latvia got flooded by the, these um, churches. You know, quite a lot of the churches came from America. The um, Prosperity Gospel Churches, uh, I, I haven't heard, heard of that one particular first evangelical church, but obviously that's also made its way. And the uh, Latvian population was an easy prey, because I think there was like a big hole. Crave, like religious cravings could be satisfied, you know, because yeah. uh, for the longest time there was no God and no any other sort of uh, substitute. And so now they had all these different choices of, of uh, communities created by these pastors that coming into a country that result in tragic yeah. events like, like this one. Uh, so yeah, let's hope they get these eight years at least. At least eight years, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to move over the Le Manche Canal into a more, I can't say positive, but less 
depressing maybe subject. Oh, good. We need that. We need is, that now. Which uh, is ear candling. Th that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't want hot, uh, hot wax poured into their ears? That's like, uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, what happened here was that the BBC's sub-programming that they have called The Social has a show where a reporter named Claudia tries all kinds of new stuff. And one of the things that she tried was ear candling. And wow. the Good Thinking Society complained to the BBC that this show endorsed this very alternative method and made it seem that it was as good, if not better, than an actual ear syringing or care that was prescribed by a real doctor. So the BBC upheld this complaint by the Good Thinking Society. They agreed with it. They said that even though at the beginning of the show it does say that the NHS does not support this ear candling and there's no evidence that ear candling is an effective treatment, the claims made by the presenter are in complete contrast with the warning and is confusing to the audience. They would try to make sure there's a higher accuracy of discussed uh, items, especially when it relates to healthcare and lifestyle. So the Good Thinking Society published a little article on their website about it. And I think one of the most important points that they presented was at the bottom where they spoke about that there should not be any health or medical advice or subjects relating to these things in a lifestyle section of any programming. They should have figured that out on It should be obvious, but if we look at, I'm sure if you look at your national newspapers yeah. or TV stations, they do kind of put these things like acupuncture under lifestyle or like they yeah. put or yeah. detoxes under lifestyle. They put mm. serious medical advice where they don't actually have any medical advice. No. Just uh, give people very strange claims based on anecdotal evidence as a part of the lifestyle, which is then easily and more likely digested by the listeners than if it was in a serious section. So this is a problem, I think, across media and across countries. And it's very good that the Good Thinking Society pointed that point out. Yeah. Sorry, Claire, would you care to say what air candling is if, if listeners hasn't heard about it? Okay, so what you do... Uh, the whole process is that we all get wax blood up in our ears. Some people get a very uh, too much of it. And if they get too much of it normally, what you would do is that you would have it cleaned out by a doctor. Don't use the white tippy things. You're not supposed to put the white tippy cotton things into your ear. It says everywhere you're not supposed to do it, but people still do it. You're supposed to go to a doctor and they will flush out the earwax after mm -hmm. softening it. But there are alternative clinics that offer this alternative where you pour hot wax, and then stick it in. Really? That's what the video I watched. Wow. That's not ear candling as I've seen it demonstrated. Okay, how did you see it? You just lie on your side. Yeah. And they put the candle in your ear. And they light it. So it, it. points right up and they light it. But yes, it, it that's is, it's the, what I thought it was too. But then I saw a video where they were pouring wow. the hot wax in and I was thinking, oh my God, what happened here? Oh God, that sounds even worse. Jeez Louise. That is just what we sometimes say is the risk may happen by accident. So I, I, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I'm, okay, so... I shouldn't be. People are crazy. So, okay. So yeah. normally what ear candling is that they put uh, an, a candle of the wick out into your mm -hmm. ear. They light it and somehow it's supposed to clean out the wax from your ear by getting it stuck to the candle in some way. And uh, what can happen though, that hot wax can actually get stuck into your in your ear and that can cause serious damage. 
mm. uh, just starting off with the burns. It always reminds me of uh, the movie Shrek, where he pulls pulls out a <laughs> ear candle right. out of his ear. Yes, uh, but that <laughs> is more fun in a cartoon than in real life. Yes, it is. Wow. Oh my god, it's getting worse every time I hear it. I'm like, oh no! Yeah, <laughs> I won't do that. <sighs> okay. All right. I'm sorry, but I'm going to harp on about religion again. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> it's, it's, there seems to be a theme developing. It's okay. a theme it's today. It's the first Advent weekend, so it it's is. fine. It is. That's our yeah. excuse. Okay. Yeah. But this is really about the Swedish school system as well. So I've several times criticized the Swedish school system for allowing so-called religious free schools. And here we go again. Two different stories, actually. The first one is a school that actually was previously known as the Science School, believe it or not. In fact, it is a Muslim religious school. The school used to be headed by a man called Abdel Nasser El Nadi, and who for reasons not related to this school happens to be regarded as a national security threat by the Swedish authorities. So we can you can start to be suspicious right away. Reports from the school talks about censored school books, anti-Semitism and forced prayer by telling students, quote, Allah is watching you. So you have to pray because Allah is watching. Mm -hmm. I, I have no idea why this should be supported by public funding or even allowed. The other story is about another free school that is officially not supposed to be a religious free school. The problem is that it seems now that it's run by Scientologists. They have references to L. Ron Hubbard as a good teacher and a pedagogue, and they use some of his methods. They have also said to parents that ADHD is not something they believe in. And also they are hostile against the psychology. And also, as we know, L. Ron Hubbard himself was very uh, hostile against uh, psychology in general. In addition, the school has invited the parents to a lecture in so-called applied scholastics given by a known Scientologist, and they have handed out Scientology leaflets on the schoolyard. So my point of view here is that the whole system with free schools in Sweden is not working. It was meant as, and I think it's largely still regarded as, a freedom of choice thing for parents who want to choose what kind of values that the kids get exposed to at school. But in practice, it's clearly very harmful. The control must be much, much better. Otherwise, the whole concept should be scrapped, in my opinion. So I wonder, how is it in the Czech Republic, Claire? Do you have similar things, religious free schools or religious schools at all? Well, we do have religious schools, even though it doesn't really make sense given our um, laws, because the schools, the religious schools, the ones, Catholic schools, are being partly funded by tax money. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them are, even though, according to law, that shouldn't be the case. But we do have schools such as Montessori and uh, mm -hmm. Waldorf uh, yeah. schools, which, of course, are harmful on them all on their own as well. But they're accepted as like a mainstream alternative. Mm. We have those as well, yeah. Yeah, those I think are those are really everywhere. We do have some schools that are called forest schools, where the kids go out are in the outside the whole day and then just go for like a lunch or a snack indoors. Mm -hmm. And some of them are kind of woo-ish, but not in that way as you're describing. We don't have such a such educational freedom. Mm. 
that that would be possible. On the other hand, homeschooling is allowed here, unlike Germany. Uh-huh. So uh, if you really want to, you could do that. Uh, instill all your values, you can always homeschool yeah. your kid. Yeah. Now, homeschooling as a rule is not permitted in Sweden, although I think you could perhaps get the permission in some cases if you have special needs or so. All right. So this week I'm doing a measles rant for a change instead of Pontus. <laughs> um, okay, so more bad news about measles around the world. The reports that are coming out of places outside of Europe are not looking good at all. So I want to mention two particular places this week, and it's um, Democratic Republic of Congo and the Samoa. And so in the Democratic Republic of Congo, there were 5,000 people, nearly 5,000 people that were killed by the measles. That's a lot of people considering that, yeah. uh, you know, that we should not even be talking about this disease, uh, given that we now have vaccination. But in Democratic Republic of Congo, close to a quarter of a million people have been infected this year alone by the measles. And wow. it's, um, you might have mentioned that before, Pontus, but I'll say it again, that the World Health Organization says it is the world's largest and fastest moving epidemic. Yeah. So you know how Ebola was a big deal, but um, measles have killed twice the number of people that Ebola has in the last yeah. 15 months. They've started an emergency vaccination program in September that aimed to inoculate more than 800,000 people, uh, kids. But of course, the fact that the uh, infrastructure is so poor in Congo and the access to healthcare isn't as great as is in, in developed countries it makes it much harder to implement. So we'll have to watch that space. I mean, this report was published on BBC at the end of November and whether the emergency vaccination program works or not remains to be seen. But of course, that's a big indication that the levels of vaccination across the country are very low. And the same goes to Samoa. But Samoa is a tiny place. It's only a population is 200 people, 200,000 people population, of which 3,000 were infected. 42 people have died. They mostly were children that were dying from this disease. Yeah. The story that, that was published by Guardian uh, talks about one particular child and uh, how the parents cope with the loss because it's, it's the worst thing in the world to lose the child, especially the young child. Yeah. Just a very poignant sto- personal story of the cost of this anti-vaccination movement. Again, another place where the vaccination rates plummeted over the years, which is what caused the the measles to spread. And it's been actually as low, uh, estimated by WHO, by the World Health uh, Organization, to be as low as 30 to 40 percent. That's a very low vaccination rate. I mean, we need it it to be, what, 92 percent to cover? 95. uh, 95 is the target. Way below. Yeah. But, you know, Samoa, as you said, it's a small place. Very... A small population, but 3,000 cases there, that's 1.5% of the total population getting yeah. the measles. And, that's and a I lot. Rec- yes, and because it's like very secluded, like they, they are obviously an island, it means that probably the, the, the measles could spread even faster, right? It's a, it's yeah, a closed kind probably. of area. Yeah. Again, state of emergency was announced. It just feels too little, too late, you know what I mean? Like 42 yeah. kids... No, they, they, died. We should note there, the news that I talked about two weeks ago, which was about the European region, looked mm-hmm. rather promising because we mm-hmm. were seeing That's right. and a, here a, a was, sharp yeah. decrease in the number of cases. But yeah. obviously the situation around the globe is not the same 
and uh, yeah. we should still be very very yeah so so what they do in Samoa or what they've been doing in Samoa in the recent um months well the, the vaccination became mandatory mm-hmm. there we as go. I always said it should be <laughs> um mass campaign began and uh, 30 stations were set up inside church halls and primary schools and supermarkets just to get people vaccinated as and when they can Mm. To to make the access uh, to the vaccines as easy as possible for everyone. Again, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But it, yeah. why did it have to get to this stage? You know what I mean? Yeah. Kids are dying and uh, the outbreak in a full swing. So it's my understanding that, of course, the vaccination rates weren't great there to begin with. But this new epidemic was caused by Western-influenced anti-vax activism in the area. Is that correct? I c- I don't have the specific data, but I'd imagine it probably had something to do with it. I just I just read um, briefly the articles. Just I was mainly looking at numbers, but it was my understanding it was some couple that came there and that started preaching anti-vax oh, rhetoric. Wow. Oh, so all that is on, on their heads, right? Exactly. But uh, so, so the, the the figures are quite horrendous. Really, infections are rising to as much as two hundred people a day. Yeah. yeah. In a country that's only two hundred thousand large, it's it's yeah. gonna. It reminds me exactly what happened to the African-American Somali community in Minnesota in 2017. They were Mm -hmm. also decimated by anti-vax rhetoric. Almost their whole community there was destroyed because of the drop in vaccination rates that was just caused by panic created by uh, privileged people. That's why it's so infuriating. It takes such small effort to create this devastatingly bad situations. A couple of people, a bit charismatic, just take it on themselves to tell people not to get vaccinated, and then you have these things happening. Well, yeah, I'm going to stay on the subject and talk about the Wakefield study, retracted Wakefield study that was cited over 1,000 times. So mm-hmm. uh, Elizabeth Sulzer... Uh, Sulter, Sulter, Elizabeth Sulter did an interview on ret- for Retraction Watch, and she's based in the Medical College of Wisconsin. And she and her research team were interested in who still cites the Wakefield study. How is it being cited? Uh, so, in the sense, is it being cited in a positive or negative way? And is the word retracted mentioned? Uh, the results that they came up with was that even though when the study is cited in a, in a negative context, it still doesn't always contain a word retracted. And even though that the author who is citing the study uses false, fraudulent, and other negative words, they don't always use the word retracted. And I've noticed that's also something that even us lay people and skeptics don't do a good job in, is using that word retracted as often as we should. Hmm. So, however, even though when it's uh, cited negatively, the number of citations is still high. I mean, it still counts, even though if it's cited yeah. in, in a negative context, which makes it more look more relevant because it's been cited so many times, especially for people who are not in academia or are not aware of this of the issue in a deeper sense. So, what Elizabeth is uh, insisting on is that her fellow scientists and researchers make their research more easier to understand and the data more easier to comprehend and that it should be always mentioned in all kind of citation apparatus that what studies, that the study you are citing is retracted. So this whole article uh, or interview Elizabeth did about the Wakefield study is not really about the content, 
but it's about the technical side of things. Like, how do you critique a bad study without giving it credit? So it's kind of what we do when we're trying to figure out how to share a bad article online without actually boosting its SEO score. Mm, so yeah. here she says that only AMA, so the American Medicine Association, has a way of clearly citing re uh, retracted studies where it says in a bold letters that it's retracted. APA has, the American Psychology, Psychology Association has something like that in its guidelines, but it's not always very clear to use in the manual. So now the website of Attraction Watch is partnering with Zotero, which is another way, uh, which is similar to uh, EndNote, so a way to kind of compile a library of, of articles. And it will automatically, on its own, check articles for if they have been retracted, because currently you always had to go and do it yourself. So now with this new system, it's going to warn you when a study you've been using or reading has been retracted. So that's a great step forward yeah. for everyone. And of course, it's, it's not always possible for journals to check references on every article they accept. But using such programs and uh, wanting these programs to develop in a way which is more user-friendly is definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, but so it sounds like a good initiative, and I, ho I hope it works and they can implement it quickly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Are you ready for another heavy topic? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm assisted suicide, anyone? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, no, but that's a good topic. I like uh, that. Could yeah. be, could be. So, because some, some countries like the Netherlands and Switzerland have a support for assisted suicide in certain cases. You may get permission to help to end your life under certain conditions. Not Sweden, though. And I want to mention a new a news item that illustrates why we probably should consider this also for more countries. There was a Swedish guy in his 60s who helped his wife, who was ill, to inject a deadly dose of morphine at her request. He did so after she had recorded a farewell speech and after she had failed in an attempt to take her life. So at that point, he volunteered to help her. It doesn't really say what the illness was, but I don't think that really matters. The man was then sentenced in the lower court to one and a half years in jail. But that verdict has now been appealed. And the defense attorney said that if this appeal is not successful, he will take it to the Supreme Court. And I think that's quite right. We have no problem with putting down a beloved pet to avoid unnecessary suffering. Why shouldn't we be able to do the same thing for ourselves if we want to and it's controlled and handled in, in a proper way? I don't, I don't understand that. Yeah, I'm with you. And um, uh, I know that the UK hasn't got the law through either, even though they tried on numerous occasions. It always got blocked. Mm. I think Belgium has the best system in Europe when it comes to assisted oh, uh, really? suicide. And because in Switzerland, you still have to be capable of administering the drugs yourself. Mm -hmm. While in Belgium, when you get fatal diagnosis, you go to a special lawyer with your doctor and with your family and with your loved ones. And you discuss potential scenarios and you discuss what should happen in various potential scenarios and when you want the plug to be pulled. So I think that's really so far that I've come across the best system where everyone's informed, everyone knows what's happening. You have the doctor in for, uh, involved, you have a lawyer involved, you can have another second, a third op medical opinion. Yeah. And it seems really the best way to go because 
when you are too far gone, then it's incredibly difficult, I think, for your loved ones to make that decision. So this is, makes it easier, I think, for everyone. Yeah. So, sorry, you said Belgium and I said Netherlands. Which is it? Yes. Or is it both? Well, I know I know Belgium has this program. I don't think that the Netherlands okay. do. I have never... I, I, but yeah, no, I, I only know about the Belgium program. Okay, maybe I was wrong then. Maybe it's Belgium. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, the, there's still kind of pseudo-religious hang-ups on assisted suicide, but... Anyone who's been in any care facility for older people or for, you know, people who have just had their disease progress too far, they don't want to live like that anymore either. I mean, many of them will tell you they just want the suffering to be over and they can't. They have to wait until they're completely gone. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah, I have heard of several accounts of my friend's parents being so ill that they wanted to die and they said explicitly that they don't want to go on. But the facilities in England certainly don't provide those services. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't see why not. Then clear mind, they're suffering, they had enough. Hmm. But there you go. Just to clarify, both Belgium and Netherlands have some sort of uh, legislation for this. They're, they're not the same, so we should read up on that. But but both of them have some sort of uh, legalized assisted dying. Hmm. Yes, and I think also how we phrase that, it's so important because mm. assisted suicide yeah. sounds so bad in our language. Yes, uh, Assisted dying or, I don't know, some kind of other way to come up another term to use to make it less... Um, clickbaity for the opposite side yeah you're right you're right all right well i've got a bit of good news for us now yay change (laughs) the good thinking society is doing great work and we've talked about them in the past um and so i want to mention them again in light of the fact that the bbc has upheld their complaint against homeopathy item on one of their programs called Health, Truth or Scare. So what they did on that particular program and the episode of that program was that they got two people in, one of whom was GP and the other one was a homeopath called George Gallic. They have been then having the discussions with the two on benefits of homeopathy versus the uh, medicine. Despite the fact that the uh, overwhelming, well-established consensus view that is that homeopathy doesn't work beyond placebo, putting this person, the, this George Garlic person, in a position of where he could express his opinion uh, kind of validated, I feel like, his opinion a little bit. Yeah. So the Good Thinking Society complained and said exactly that. So they was responsible. So as part of the segment, they were following someone who was taking homeopathy uh, to treat a condition of some sort. And um, it, it didn't happen at the time, but if she would, would have shown improvements, random improvements or whatever, it would have given a very misleading impression that homeopathy can cure anything, really. Yes, the BBC upheld the complaint and agreed and concluded, and I will quote from the conclusion, although the item included a number of script lines which made clear that the opinion of informed medical experts is that homeopathy was ineffective and uh, a contribution from a GP which reinforced this point, it gave the overall impression that the relative validity of homeopathy and conventional medicine was still a matter of debate. Mm. And it's not. You should, not not, be pu- no, no. And you should not be pu- putting GPs and homeopaths in the same room and asking them to put their opinion forward. It's that just beyond the point that mm-hmm. homeopathy doesn't work. 
Beyond that, uh, Good Thinking Society also raised a concern around the fact that George Garlic, being a significant contributor on this program, he's actually got his own business and the website going, and he claims to treat, and I quote, everything from conception to death, coughs to psychosis, autism to cancer with homeopathy, end quote. Mm. They've also complained that actually the viewers might be at risk if they were to seek treatment for these conditions from, from somebody like him. After is watching it, this pro- is it, isn't it against the law in the UK to say you can treat cancer? Well, I think it is. Well, um, I wonder if he's removed these claims. Actually, I didn't go on, on his website to check whether he, this is how he put it, but or, or if there's like a caveat in, in yeah. the word treat. But, but in any case, when they raised that concern, BBC did not agree with, with this point because they argued that George Garlic had made no reference uh, to these claims in the program, hmm. which kind of doesn't matter that he had made no reference. But if people want to Google him afterwards... They gave him, gave him credibility, yeah. And that's yeah, back yeah. to the point we were making before. It's, oh, it's not that bad. He's not that bad. I mean, of course, he's not going to say all the crazy shit on the, like, on the TV program. No, he's going to get the people interested and then say the crazy shit later. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and sorry, just I, I want to just mention something quickly. I, I did keep saying BBC upheld the ruling, but it was the BBC Executive Complaints Unit, the ECU, okay. So, okay. which is part of the BBC. I guess another victory from Good Thinking Society. We'll keep talking about it. And uh, what's so good about the work they do, it becomes publicized and wildly quoted by outlets like BBC. So that's pretty good um, That's good publicity. Yeah. So can I have a little tiny news item that's not on the list? Oh, Go sure. On. All right. So today is a little bit of a sad day because the Apostrophe Society has shut down. For those of you who have never heard of the Apostrophe Society, <laughs> its founder, John Richards, a journalist, was giving the Ig Nobel Prize for Literature for his uh, insistence in correctly using the apostrophe. Now, the society only has three roles that uh, you have to know how to use apostrophe in the possessive form, knowing contractions as in you, when you use you are and your, and your, mm-hmm. and um, never use apostrophes for plurals. Well, unfortunately, Mr. Richards uh, turned 96, and he is exhausted that people still keep doing it wrong. (laughs) And uh, even though he has been doing this for 18 years, people still don't know how to use an apostrophe correctly. So what he did, he went around like cities uh, sometimes, and he would like write a note to the city if there was like a square written incorrectly, like St. Paul Square didn't have the apostrophe before, before the S and things like that. So we're very sorry, or I'm very sorry to see this uh, society go, but hopefully others will crop up in its wake. Uh, yeah, that, that was a f- fun news, but uh, I'm sorry that he's giving up. But I'm, as you said, I'm, sh- I'm sure others will pick it up. Well, you know, that was a long list of uh, news we wanted mm-hmm. to talk about. And I think that's it for this week. Now the next on the list is the Really Wrong segment from Pontus. Yes, there was a lot of heavy subjects this week, so I thought I'd end on a lighter note. This is surely the silliest thing I've heard in a long time. According to an article in The Guardian, the latest insight that some genius has come up with is that we are enjoying life too much. (laughs) That's no good. Apparently, we should not have all this dopamine in our body, because if we have too much fun, 
that may lead to problems, perhaps even addiction. Da da da. So this is the brainchild of a psychologist called Dr. Cameron Seppa from San Francisco. He says that by reducing the brain's feel-good chemical known as dopamine, cutting back on things like food, sex, alcohol, social media and technology, he believes that you can reset the brain to be more effective and appreciate simple things more easily. And it's not just food, sex and rock and roll. Sorry, food, sex and (laughs) alcohol. I guess his point of alcohol, I can sort of understand. You have to, be, you should be a little bit careful with that one. But it's not just those big things. Followers go so far as to avoiding everything that makes them feel good at all, such as eye contact or something that can excite you, like entering a busy street. That's a real example. Somebody felt too happy in a noisy street, so that's how, that has to be avoided now. Anything that's fun, anything you look forward to, just avoid it. So what do you think about that? Do you have too much fun in your lives? <laughs> okay, so... I fun can is overrated. <laughs> yeah, I can see his point of view when it comes to like addiction to social media based yes. on dopamine. I yes. can get see that point. But I think not going outside onto a busy street, that's just going too far. <laughs> uh, yeah, and avoiding eye contact because yes. it makes you happy to look at somebody else. I like that. But imagine that you have a job that you actually enjoy and that makes you happy. So according to this, you should just like give up your job. You have to quit your job. A lot of um, scientists have pointed out that dopamine actually performs a very important function in your body. And if you didn't have any dopamine at all, you would probably just die because you, yeah, you need it. But it's also interesting with this is it's sort of the ultimate first world problem. True. We have so we have so little to worry about that we have to get out of our way to make life a little bit more boring. Miserable. Yep. Miserable. We want to be more miserable. Life's too good. So, Dr. Cameron Sepa from San Francisco gets today's prize for being really wrong. And actually, he's a total failure because I couldn't help enjoying hearing about this nonsense. I laughed so hard that I'm afraid I got a real dopamine kick right out of it. So big fail on his part. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, you know, I think that's it for today. But um, before we finish, I have a quote. I didn't want to end with a serious quote because this was a very serious show and uh, we should sometimes have fun, (laughs) despite what some people think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but um, but this is just an anonymous quote, probably widely circulated by various uh, social networks, but I'm going to mention it anyway. Here it goes. I just finally discovered what's wrong with my brain. On the left side, there is nothing right. And on the right side, there is nothing left. (laughs) (laughs) speak for yourself though (laughs) (laughs) you cannot deny the truth of this quote though (laughs) okay very Uh, good fun anyway the end thanks so much for joining and listening and being awesome we will reassemble next week for episode number 200 (laughs) yeah Um, until next time thanks so much Claire for joining us it was a pleasure having you Thank you. And Pontus, as always, thank you very much. All right. Пока, пока, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.
This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Joining me today for the show are my co-hosts, Claire. <laughs> no! I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> oh, oh, let me just, let me try it. Claire Kroluk Klingenberg. That was great. Was that, that was right? great. Yeah. Horatio Carpaccio. No, Carpaccio is uh, something you eat. <laughs> Food. <laughs> this is surely the silliest thing I've ever heard. No, this is surely this. No, I, I'll, I'll rephrase that. This is because I've heard a lot of silly things.